Well, it's, uh, it's really an honor to be with you because I am fan. I'm a big fan of EWG. Um, my first, I think, interaction uh, specifically with EWG was, um, you obviously know Mike Riccardi, and he gave a talk on the Covenant recently, correct? And it was, I think, about four or five years ago, he did the same talk in EWG, and I stood in the back for that. Um, and I loved everything he said, so I said, we need to capture that. And so we created a little diagram um, with the charts of the covenants, because I felt like it helped it really helps you understand the Bible when you see God's redemptive storyline in that compact way so that when you are reading through your Bible, it gives you a nice map to know where you're at. So what we did is we turned that little chart of his covenants uh, and, and built on it and turned it into a book. I don't know if he mentioned this a few weeks ago, but that book is called The Forest and the Trees, and that's by Mike Riccardi. And it really just unpacks what the Bible is and what the storyline is. So I recommend that book to you. If you enjoyed his talk from a few weeks ago, then I would recommend that book. It's in the bookstore, The Forest and the Trees. Well, as I said, I'm, I'm a fan of you guys. I, I, I try to uh, find out what you guys are up to. Uh, in your teaching, and, and it was a few weeks ago, no, it was longer than a few weeks ago, it was last, uh, last semester that I heard that Lauren and Kelly uh, were interested in doing the book of Hebrews. And so I was like, ooh, I love Hebrews, uh, because Jeremy, who uh, I think he preached last week, we, we served together in a Bible study in Crossroads, and we went through Hebrews, and so I, we had just finished, and when I heard that they were going to uh, when you, that you guys were going to be studying it, I wanted to just just give a little recommendation uh, about an about an article that I had read about chapters eight, nine, and ten because eight, nine, and ten is really there's a lot going on in it, and I felt like that article really helped clarify what the author was doing in those three chapters. So I sent it to Lauren and Kelly, and I said, "Hey, um, when you go through uh, this book, read this article. It's really, really helpful." And the response was, great, will you come teach? <laughs> and that's, that wasn't my intention. And, and the, other, the other thing that I was, um, I said, okay, yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to. Uh, the other prayer that I had was, okay, I'm happy to do this, but Lord, let it not be one of the warning passages. <laughs> and sure enough, I got the fiercest warning passage in the entire book of Hebrews. So let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 26, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 39. Prior to the year 1928, illnesses, simple illness, illnesses like, well, not simple, but pneumonia, strep throat, earaches, and even simple cuts would regularly end fatally. Life expectancy, because of that, the average life expectancy was 47 years old at that time and before. Today, 
the average life expectancy is 79. Everything would change, though, with the accidental discovery of a fungus found in mold. And without that unlikely treatment by putting it into our bodies, life today would not be the same. Most of us wouldn't be around. The, like, the unlikely story of the first antibiotic, penicillin. The ingestion of a mold. Who would have thought? Sometimes the life-giving answer comes in the most unexpected places. And for the early followers of Jesus, particularly those who came from a Jewish background and had a Jewish expectation for a Jewish Messiah, a Messiah who leaves without fulfilling those expectations is an unlikely answer. And this was the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews. These people were waiting for liberation from an outside nation that had been ruling over them. They'd been waiting for liberation for 600 years from Rome, from Greece before them, and from Babylon before them. But if you think about the promise to God to Abraham, then they had been waiting around more than 600 years. They've been waiting 2,000 years for that answer to that promise. And if you add how long they've been waiting for the promise in the garden to Adam and Eve to undo the the curse, that that Eve's seed would undo and crush the head of the serpent, then they had been waiting around for 4,000 years. You think that we've been waiting long for our Messiah to come back. But then one day, the one they had finally waited for had come, the Messiah. The one that was promised to sit on David's throne forever, he would undo death, he would undo sickness, and he would undo sin. And he would be a blessing to all nations. He would bring restoration to all creation. And he actually beats death and sin by rising from the dead after being executed. But he leaves. And now, 30 to 40 years have passed. And his followers, his church, they weren't very successful from a worldly perspective. They're in hiding. And those who left Judaism to embrace this Messiah, to, to, to join up with the Messiah's followers, are now being hunted. And they're being persecuted by the very friends and family that they left. And they start to wonder, did we make the right decision? Is he the one we, wait, we were waiting for? Should we go back to Judaism? And the book of Hebrews 
was the answer to those questions. You could imagine them asking, should we just hit reset? Should we go back to a pre-Jesus faith? What if we wait for a more spectacular Messiah? The one that would truly rescue us and bring us back to a place of honor and glory. But instead, in their minds, they're tempted to think we've been banking on an ordinary guy who came and left. And no apparent kingdom to be restored to Israel. Even after Jesus' resurrection, even the disciples asked this question. Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So you know if the disciples are asking that question, this church here is struggling with the same question. Which brings us to a surprising and somewhat shocking verse or passage that we're about to read. It's our text today. Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. Let me read the first verse. You could read along with me. And I believe that this first verse will help inform the rest of the passage and the rest of our time together. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I'm going to stop there. Now my job today is to do two things. Number one, it's to answer the question that's most likely on your mind. What does it mean that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins if we go on sinning deliberately? Does this mean I can lose my salvation? Am I still a Christian? And the second thing I have to do today is I have to unpack the argument of the passage. And I believe that I can, if I do number one, then I hope that it will automatically do number two and I could hit two birds with one stone in this talk. <laughs> and this is my answer to the question. Deliberately sinning of Hebrews 10.26 is the sin of unbelief. This is active disbelief and rejecting Jesus. It is seeing the unexpected answer, much like the unlikely but life-saving cure of penicillin, and refusing it. Today's, today's lecture is entitled, Embracing the Unexpected Superior One. And we're going to have three points. They will have subpoints, so I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, but the points are very simple. Number one, the context. And that is everything that led up to this point, chapters 1 through 10. Number two, the text. Chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. And number three, the next. I had the you know, rhyme, because that's what every teacher does. The next is the next chapters, <laughs> chapters 11 through 13. Let's start with point one, the context. This passage today is the final section, not only of chapter 10, 
but it's the crescendo of the first half of the entire book. You can imagine the letter of Hebrews being two halves. The first half is chapters 1 through 10. The second half is chapters 11 through 13. The pillars of the house, that is the book of Hebrews, are chapters 1 through 10. Four pillars. The roof of the house is chapters 11 through 13. Now, the first uh, two chapters make up the first pillar. And that is, well, the the first half is this. Jesus is better. And you know that because you've been going through it for so long. Jesus is better. Chapters 1 and 2 is Jesus is better than the angels in Torah. Number 2, actually, you you could move to the next slide. There we go. Jesus is better than is the first half. Jesus is better than, chapters 1 and 2, first pillar, better than angels in Torah. Next slide. There we go. Second pillar, chapters three and four, Jesus is better than Moses and the promised land. Next pillar, chapters five through seven, is Jesus is better than Aaron and Levi. And chapters eight through 10, Jesus is better than the tabernacle and offerings. To say it another way, Jesus is superior. Jesus is is superior messenger and message. He is, oh, you can go to the next slide. Jesus is a superior messenger and message. Jesus is a better leader and destination, better than Moses. Jesus is a superior priest, and Jesus is a superior sacrifice. So, if Hebrews is a building, everything that comes in the pillars is the doctrine. Everything that comes after it is the application. Congratulations, ladies. You have made it through the most difficult part of Hebrews. Give yourselves a hand. So what's next, what's coming next, is if the first half is, and you can move to the next slide, if the first half is Jesus is superior or Jesus is better, The next half is living in light of the superior one. Living living life in light of the superior one. And if there's one word that the book of Hebrews says how to live life in light of the superior one, it is faith. Faith. Now, the argument, this is something I want to add, because a lot of times when you hear Jesus is better, you're like, I know that, right? Some, some of you are probably thinking like, yeah, I get it. It's, it's supposed to be profound. And for us, it's difficult because we are not the same people. We're not, we don't have as much um, weightiness in our everyday life for the things that had come in chapters 1 through 10. So, what you don't want to, to think about in those first chapters, do not think about angels as, as obsolete. Don't think of Moses as meaningless. Don't think about the priesthood as worthless. And don't think of the sacrifices as pointless or disposable. It was to showcase these mountaintops of redemption, these mountaintops of redemptive history, to say 
Yes, these were essential. These were powerful. But they were meant to point to something else. They were meant to point to Jesus. So no long, it's not just that he's better. It's that he's the crescendo of those things. So the call of each of these sections, the conclusion of each of these sections is Jesus is better and therefore believe on him. Have faith in him. The argument isn't so much to rely on your works to save you. The argument is that he is savior, not you. So in 1026, the question is, is what 1026 is saying that we need to not willfully sin in a general sense? Is it saying that we should just not willfully disobey? No. The first 10 chapters of Hebrews says, we must not reject Jesus. That's the context. That's point one. We must have faith in Jesus. Additionally, all four of these pillars below have with them companion warning passages. You could call it their their little application in the midst of the theology. And each of those warning passages are tied to one of these four pillars. The first warning passage in chapters 1 through 2 is found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So you could hit the next slide. Warning passage, 2, 1 through 4. The next warning passage is found in chapters 3 and 4, and that's chapter 3, verse 7 through 4, verse 13. The third warning passage in the, second, or in the third pillar is chapters 5 through 7, is the warning passage that's chapter 5, 11 through 6, 12. And 8 through 10, the final pillar, is our current warning passage today. Got it? Great. Now, in order to make the point that the willful, willful, willful sinning in this passage is not talking about general sin and is talking about the sin of unbelief and rejecting Jesus, we need to look at all four warning passages together. You cannot hear these warning passages without seeing the unity of all four of them. Listen to the fact that they have the same argument. Warning passage number one, don't neglect a great salvation. Grab hold of salvation. Warning passage number two, don't have an unbelieving heart. We who believe enter that rest. Warning passage number three, through faith, inherit the promise. So are these previous warning passages before we get to our own today, are they saying we need to not willfully disobey in a general sense? No, it's saying cling to salvation, cling in faith to salvation. They are saying we must not reject Jesus. We must have faith in him. 
So the context, both the chapters themselves and the warning passage leading up to these point, to this point, points to, the, to that this passage is talking about faith in Jesus. Point two, the text. Now we're getting to the text. We're going to read our whole passage now. And I want you to notice two parts. Number one, this is a subpoint to number two. So I just, we could call it, let's call it point A under subpoint two, or under point two. Verses 26 through 31, the result of rejecting. The result of rejecting. And subpoint B, verses 32 through 39, the reward of accepting. The reward of accepting. Let's start with the first point the result of rejecting. Notice a couple things uh, as we head into this first half of this passage. He argues from lesser to greater. If it was bad rejecting Yahweh in the Old Testament, then how much worse is it to reject Jesus in the New Covenant? And secondly, notice the number of Old Testament quotes he makes. You might not see it in your Bible, but in some Bibles, you might have uh, an indented um, portion of Scripture. You might have it in italics. You might have a little note. But there are about four or five, depending on how you break up the passages, uh, Old Testament references. And those are important. So let's go ahead and read. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment Punishment? do you think we will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who has said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. This is clearly the strongest of all the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Verse 26 is deliberately keep on sinning. And the question is, what does that mean? Because it comes out of nowhere. If you think about it, we we just looked at all 10 chapters and all of a sudden it talks about sinning deliberately and doesn't seem to fit in the previous chapters. Nor, as we will see, does it seem to fit in with with the immediate context. Notice that it doesn't say deliberately keep on sinning after we received commandments. It doesn't say deliberately keep on sinning after we were told to obey. It it doesn't say deliberately keep on sinning after we were instructed to live a certain way. No, it says keep on sinning after we have what? Received the knowledge of the truth. This isn't a rejection of commands. This is a rejection of doctrine, a rejection of theology, a rejection of the truth of Jesus. 
Next, look at the exchange that was, that's made. Look at the trade, what was being traded. Starting in the, in the second half of verse 26, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. A rejection of the truth of Jesus and his work, so the truth and the reality of who Jesus is and what he accomplished, in exchange for what? In exchange for the judgment of God. Then the author makes a comparison from lesser to greater by quoting the Old Testament. Verse 28, And anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as unholy the, the, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him? First off, we have four Old Testament passages Five of you break up the uh, verse. It's Deuteronomy 32.35 and Deuteronomy 32.36. So here are the passages. I'll give them to you. If you want to write them down, that's fine. It's Isaiah 26.11, Deuteronomy 17.2-6, Deuteronomy 32.35, Deuteronomy 32.36, and Psalm 135.14. Now, let's start with verse 28, which quotes Deuteronomy 17. And by the way, the context of Deuteronomy is the, it's the closing of Torah. It's, it's the people of Israel, after wandering 40 years in the desert, are on, the, on the, the edge of the Jordan River. What's on the other side of the Jordan River? The promised land. They're getting ready to cross. And Moses starts preaching some sermons on how they t- are to live on the other side. Let's uh, look at... Verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, the question is this, is this talking about a general disobeying the law? That's the question, because you could ask that question, like rejection of Moses, maybe it's saying we're not obeying it. The answer is no. It's not a general disobeying of of rules. And I'll give you two reasons. Number one, the law of Moses is another name for the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. There's a lot more in those books than rules. The Torah is the story of God. It's the character of God. And it's how people, the people of God, enter into a relationship with God. It's, it's a covenant. It's a relationship. So when you see the phrase law of Moses, it's actually much broader than we sometimes think. It's essentially God's self-introduction to his people. When you get the law of Moses, you get God himself. Number two, The second reason that I think verse 28 is not talking about a general disobedience is because of the passage that it quotes, and that is Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 6. And I will read it for you so you don't have to turn. If there is found among you, this is Moses to the people, if there is found among you 
within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, he's going to tell you what that is, in transgressing, transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them. Or the sun, or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden. And it is told, and it is told you, and you hear of it. Then you shall inquire diligently. It's about this person that they know, who's what? Left. And they've rejected Yahweh, and they've gone after other gods. And if it's true, so they're supposed to inquire about, what, okay, is this true? And if it is true, and, cert, and, it, and it's certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who's done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Interesting. So this isn't a general disobedience. And you have to make certain that it's true. This is someone turning away from God and exchanging him for idols. This is unbelief. And so he compares the audacity, that audacity of rejecting Yahweh to the audacity of rejecting Jesus and his sacrifice himself. The argument is from lesser to greater, meaning you have capital physical punishment in the old covenant and you, and you get stoned and you die. But how much worse is an eternal spiritual punishment for rejecting Jesus? Look at verse 29. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as un, an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has, who has insulted the Spirit of grace? The trampling of the Son of God underfoot. That's, that's unbelief in the Son of God the treating of the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. That's a rejection of the work of Christ. And if it wasn't any more clear that this is not talking about losing your salvation over works, which, by the way, is works righteousness, look at the last phrase, insulted the spirit of grace. This is a rejection of the free gift of the gospel by insulting the spirit who freely applies the merits of Jesus. This is an unlikely answer, that, that he is fully life-giving, and it's Jesus. Put all your trust in him, is what the author of Hebrews is saying. One concluding thought on this first half, in, um, this first half of the text and it's, and it's quoted here in Isaiah 26, Deuteronomy 32, and, and Psalm 135. This is judgment that, that God has and, and, and will pour out, but that 
what these Old Testament texts are saying, it's not irrational anger. This is a type of anger that is a protective, vindicating love for his people. Isaiah 26, 11, I'm going to read it to you. Listen to the context of the verses that are being quoted in our passage. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Psalm 35, 14, 135, 14. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Deuteronomy 32, 36. Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining. Some scholars look at these texts, the fact that the New Testament author here is quoting these passages and he's saying, and this is what they say sometimes. Look, the author of Hebrews took the Old Testament out of context. The Old Testament passages here are talking about a loyal caretaking defense of God's people. But obviously, Hebrews is talking about just fierce judgment. But the author of Hebrews is a genius, mainly because it's the Holy Spirit. And just like all New Testament writers, the Holy Spirit, they're geniuses. And he was completely intentional with this, quoting. It's actually more appropriate than anyone thinks. Because what is happening to the followers of Jesus in the context of this book being written in Hebrews? They're being persecuted. And some of the people being persecuted, they're, they're in the church. And, and, and they're receiving this persecution and they're thinking, maybe we should go back so we don't have to deal with this anymore. And some of those people being persecuted are thinking of going back to Judaism to the very ones persecuting them. So it seems highly appropriate that Hebrews is saying, not only is there judgment, this is a fierce, protective judgment of the enemies of God's people. To abandon Jesus is to be on the other side of that fierce protection. The protection of a father. The second half of our text is the reward of accepting. The reward of accepting, verses 32 to 39. Notice an exchange, another exchange that happens. Those who left Judaism to participate in the community of the church, they're going to church. Now, a lot of, the, a lot of times when you're reading the book of Hebrews, the question is, are they believers, are they unbelievers, are they mixed group? And I honestly think that there's more agreement than, than anything. Because I think that with any church... When someone's hearing a sermon like uh, the book of Hebrews, not everybody in the church is a Christian. You have visitors. You have people who are maybe members, but they never really truly converted. So you have a mixed audience for sure. And so you have some people in the midst of this congregation, and they, they've, they're, they're, they're receiving persecution, and they've come to the edge of faith. And they haven't fully trusted Christ. And they have, in some sense, made an exchange, at least temporarily. They've exchanged comfort, they've exchanged well-being, 
and even their possessions to have an embrace of Jesus. And just like the seeds in Jesus's parable, the ones that fell on rocky and thorny soil, they did have an initial sprouting. And so Hebrews is saying, keep that sprout. Keep that sprout. Verse 32. Remember those earlier days. Let me just switch. I'm going to read from ESV. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured the hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God and you may you may receive what is promised. For yet in a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." This exchange is an exchange for, of everything that they have, possessions. But Hebrew says, true faith endures. And it maintains its grasp of Jesus. And in the end, what's the reward? What's the reward? If someone, ladies, were to ask you what is the greatest gift of the gospel? What is your favorite gift of the gospel? What would you say? The correct answer, and a lot of Sunday school kids get this right, is Jesus. He is not only the rescue, he is also the reward. Our text gives another quote from Isaiah 26 again about the rescue of a loving father for his people. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you receive what he has promised for in a little while, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And the text closes with a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. And what's so fitting is that just like the recipients of the book of Hebrews, the people of Israel during Habakkuk's time had been waiting a couple thousand years. But instead of rescue, what came was an invading army. And Habakkuk's ministry that was once a ministry of calling people to repent and to turn and come back to Yahweh changed to a new ministry. And that new message was this, wait, judgment is coming. The nation is going to take us out. 
but wait on the Lord. Trust. It will be hard, but trust. Simple, patient faith. And this is the quote from Habakkuk. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That last line really seals the deal on this warning passage. The obedience at stake here is the obedience of faith. Believe and trust in the work of Jesus. Final brief point. Point three is the next. And that's the next chapters. The original question was this. What is willful, diso- is willful dis- disobedience talking about works righteousness? If chapters 1 through 10 didn't convince you, and our text, chapter 10, verses 26 through 39, didn't convince you, then take one look at the next chapter. The Hall of Faith. And if you aren't familiar with the Hall of Faith, then most, if not all, of the Hall of Faith wouldn't be in heaven if they were saved by obedience. Because one or more of the following things are true of every single one of them that are mentioned in the Hall of Faith. Suffering, doubt, and moral failure. Every one of the the people mentioned in the Hall of Faith have one or more of those things true about them. Suffering, doubt, and moral failure. Because chapter 11, it's a showcase of faith. Which is what the book of Hebrews is all about. Jesus is better. So put your faith in him. And that's not a one-time thing. That's a daily thing. We're not called believeds, believeds. We're called believers. For most of us, if not all of us, we were not tempted to go back to a Jesusless Judaism this past week. But some of you potentially tossed this question around in your mind. Is this all worth it? Is this real? And many of us are tempted to unbelief. It's a different type of unbelief, but it's unbelief nonetheless. Attempting to make God happier by our good works. As if Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. Or maybe the thought that God loved you less because of doubt or failure. After the discovery of penicillin in 1928 and its distribution to the public, the man who discovered it gave this warning. Don't overuse it. It may lose its effectiveness. The good news for us is our sufficiency isn't in our work. It's in his work. And he is omnisufficient. It's a never-ending sufficiency. Cultivate a life of patient faith 
daily. He is worth it. Let's pray. Father, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. I pray we would see the audacity of that free gift, and it would just cause us to cling so much tighter in a daily worship of faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.